Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieras, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. You're a soldier. Finish your mission. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. Hi. Today's episode is No Victory, No Defeat, our wrap-up episode on 2004's Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. As always, we will finish up our coverage by doing our deep dive into the game's themes and messages, or at least how we take them. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. And today, we will be joined by our guest, Will. Will, please introduce yourself. Hi, all. Uh, My name is Will. You may know me from Twitter as Enron Hubbard or at WillHammer40K. I'm also the host of a podcast called Raw Intelligence, uh, which is not officially a Metal Gear podcast, but being that I'm one of the hosts, it invariably comes up like once per episode. And you may have also noticed we haven't had a proper episode up recently, uh, just because we've been in sort of transitory phases in our lives. But I think we'll be making a return uh, pretty soon. Um, in any case, I was originally uh, supposed to be on this podcast to shed some light on some of the uh, political background of the game's story, uh, as my educational background is in political science, uh, which is embarrassing and you should make of other political science majors, but not me for that. Um, in any case, uh, I hope I can lend some insight into the real or plausible aspects of the background of this game story. And yeah, I can go ahead and vouch for how often Metal Gear comes up on Will's podcast, <laughs> um, especially in April. Uh, they were basically counting down till April 30th and Metal Gear Solid 2 day. <laughs> yeah. So some real fans there. Oh, one of the uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for this aside, but one of the uh, doormen or sort of like security guards where I work, there's like one guy who like salutes everybody. And he's not there, like, he's not on duty or whatever, like, very often. But he happened to be working on uh, April 29th or 30th. And I was very happy that they had him working on on my special day so that I could be saluted. Oh, that's great. Before I took the uh, obligatory elevator ride up to work. So in true Podcast Sans Frontieras fashion, we will carry on the meme of our MGS 1 and 2 coverage. We'll be hitting some familiar beats like setting, power fantasies, and imperialism as they relate to the third Metal Gear Solid title. I won't do a hackneyed Webster's Dictionary to find setting as shtick, but setting is really about place and time, or in Metal Gear's lingua franca, scene and the times, the two organizing pillars of this game. We'll start with the game's scene, or setting as a place, which for the first time in the Solid series takes us outside of U.S. borders and into the Soviet Union, a country that sadly no longer exists. 
which I think is very much in line with the game's themes, both in terms of the ever-shifting international political body of allies and enemies, as well as Kojima's ongoing critique of the American century and how American imperialism shaped the world in its image following World War II. Indeed, what is that if not the American philosophers pillaging the wealth of the old world to form the Patriots? And of course, this being the genesis of it all, we get to watch as the central division takes form. America versus USSR, East versus West, Big Boss versus Zero. However you want to break it down, the world of snakes and metal gears can only be a fractured one, inherently broken in every way. Yes, and to further set the scene as it relates to the plot, I think we should talk for a second about the the background political conflict. Obviously, there's the Cold War going on, that's the background, um, and the Cold War is a a very simple phrase that we use to describe a very large series of events taking place in a lot of um, time and, and place. It was, you know, most of a century. Um, but in any case, this whole game takes place about two months after the Cuban Missile Crisis and less than a year after the assassination of JFK. And there's two big things going on in the game that I want to address as far as their like plausibility of actually happening. Um, the first being the phone call between Johnson and Khrushchev after the Virtuous Mission, which sets off the events of Operation Snake Eater. Was that true or not? Could that have happened? Answer, absolutely yes. Uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK and Khrushchev were in frequent phone contact. Uh, so their phone call in this game is absolutely a real possibility. Um, the second conflict is between Khrushchev and the military, uh, you know, symbolized by Volgan in the game. Um, so in real life, Khrushchev was involved as a sort of, uh, liaison between the Soviet government and the military during World War II. And, you know, I, I think anybody can assume that we can, anybody in that sort of role would make some friends and some enemies in the military. Um, and as one's career progressed and somebody's still in the military and all of a sudden you're the premier of the USSR, uh, if you have any sort of ill feelings towards them, I think those are only going to grow. Uh, so that power dynamic, or rather that dynamic of friends versus enemies, very, very possible. Um, the other thing that I thought was very interesting that I didn't know before I started researching for this episode is that by the time Khrushchev took power and the time when MGS3 takes place, Khrushchev had lost a great degree of popular support and had enemies all across the USSR, be they military or civilian. And on top of that, he was very interested in making missiles the primary element of defense for the USSR. Uh, as opposed to, you know, boots on the ground, real humans, um, which I think lends a lot of credence to the whole Shagohad project um, and just the sort of level of military engineering necessary for it to have happened. Um, so basically, Snake Eater, far more plausible story than uh, you might initially believe. And the actual specific location of the game's events are somewhat opaque. Salino Yarsk is not a real place. The environment seems most like locations in the Southeast USSR, but the geopolitics and story itself seem to indicate it's in the Southwest of the Federation, which is where I tend to fall. And since I'm sharing my own headcanon here, to me, this is the place where Big Boss would set up Zanzibar land in Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake and is regionally adjacent to the Afghanistan maps in MGSV. The Soviet Union invokes America's number one enemy for much of the post-World War II epoch. From the 1950s to the early 1990s, America waged war against socialist and communist states both militarily and philosophically. The Soviet Union stood in as a synecdoche for larger socialist movements and propaganda campaigns, something reflected back to us through 80s and 90s action pop culture. 
And I think it only makes sense to have an MGS game take place smack in the middle of the height of the Cold War. As Manu said, the whole conflict was the quote-unquote justification of the American government becoming an apparatus of wealth transfer from taxpayers to military contractors, which then kill people overseas. Kojima's criticism of this, I think we can comfortably say, is the primary thrust of the franchise. Furthermore, I think the Metal Gear Solid franchise's titular weapons are, in a sense, a stand-in for nuclear weapons. And while they may seem fantastical and impractical, I choose to think that this is representative of the way Japanese civilians felt when they saw pamphlets warning them of a coming nuclear strike. Uh, if you don't know this, <laughs> there were um, the pamphlets dropped uh, on in, in Japan's you know warning of a nuclear weapon. Um, and you know everyone on this podcast, and presumably most of the audience, has grown up knowing what a nuclear weapon is and what a mushroom cloud looks like and whatnot and what that sort of symbolizes. But we're so far removed from the Cold War is a reality. So imagine being on the other side of understanding what a nuclear bomb is. It would seem absolutely fantastical. Oh, the Americans have this new terrible weapon that will just vaporize us instantly. Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, you know, Japanese civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki had no such frame of reference for this. And I think, for me, that's part of why uh, I, I think the, the Metal Gear weapon is such an interesting thing, because is a sort of reflection of that, you know, Kojima couldn't really think of something worse than a nuclear weapon. It's really just a more effective way to launch one. And I think that speaks to the destructive power of nuclear weapons and why, um, in my opinion, Kojima spent a whole game franchise critiquing their existence and having the protagonists of it be opposed to it. Yeah, I think uh, I think Americans don't, I think we, I think we have some like respect for the power of the of the nuclear of nuclear bombs, but I don't think we we really properly view them as the unequivocal moral evil that they are. Like we just sort of right because we use them because we're the good guys and we're the only ones who used them. So yeah, you know, must be a little bit of uh, good happens with the bad. I don't know. What can you say? Well, the equivocation is always you know. Well, if we didn't use it, then we would have to evade mainland Japan and thousands and millions of Americans would have died. All it's like that's technically true, but it's 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 an equivocation at best. So like we don't have the same. Who's to say how many Japanese civilians and military personnel and how many American personnel would have died in a land invasion of Japan? We don't know. What we do know is that is that Truman dropped two bombs that vaporized tons of civilians. That did that definitely happened. Yeah, and I think in American culture. Nukes are more abstract. They're more like a uh, yes. They're like a MacGuffin. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there's we don't yeah, and we don't understand the reality of it. We don't have yep. museums to the you know injustice that I think it was. Um, and f- this is sort of a strange reference, but anytime I talk about nuclear weapons, it sort of invariably comes up for me. Um, so I I always had a, a fascination with the Cold War and whatnot, which is part of why I'm so into Snake Eater. Um, I'm also a big fan of 80s thrash metal, which, guess what, oftentimes talked about the Cold War and all this nuclear holocaust type shit. Um, and one of my favorite examples of this, and I think it's a great example of uh, art striking you a little bit more um, firmly than you know facts and figures about whatever might be. But there's a song called uh, Spontaneous by a band called Toxic, spelled with a K. Um, and there's a line in it that I is just like seared into my memory. So it's going to be really embarrassing when I don't remember it correctly. Uh, but it's something like, uh, uh, 
Uh, they talk retaliation like it might save this nation. There'll be no second life, no second strike. I had a dream what it was like. There was a flash and we were gone. That's it. <laughs> like, that's what fucking happens. You don't exist anymore. You're fucking vaporized. And we have no recognition of that. That is an entirely abstract concept in the American popular imagination. Yeah, and I like what you were saying earlier about how, you know, the Japanese were uh, pamphleted with these, oh, we're going to nuke you. And, you know, they have no context for what a nuclear bomb is. It's something unknowable to them at that point. Exactly. And when you look at other Japanese media that critiques, you know, the nuclear bomb attacks, I think the obvious example is Godzilla. Yeah. Because there's something unknowable about this monster. It's something, you know, older, deeper. Just it's beyond human comprehension. And I I honestly think that what we did to those two cities in Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, is almost unknowable. Like that sheer level of devastation, I don't think a single human head can wrap its head around in a good and thoughtful way. (laughs) Well, if you did have the misfortune of seeing it, it'd be the last thing you ever saw because the light is literally blinding. Oh, It was in the Soviet other that America was able to justify, justify used very loosely here, pouring billions into military R&D, sending its forces both overtly and covertly all over the world to take down leftist uprisings. One of the prime examples is America's neighbor, Cuba, in which America is actively taking part in clandestine operations following the rise of Castro. The boss even implies she was involved in these missions, and the Cuban Missile Crisis and Bay of Pigs fiasco are explicitly called out in the game. And honestly, the in-game biome of the maps Snake works through are more similar to the climate and biodiversity of Cuban jungles than anywhere in Russia. Uh, I also want to note that I wrote out these couple paragraphs back in early June, uh, right before um, the quote-unquote Cuban protests began, and, you know, we're going to do more sanctions and do more imperialism on the Cuban continent. So I kind of changed some of those things about uh, some of the verbs in that previous paragraph from past tense to present tense to capture that. I mean, we are still very much in an economic war with Cuba. So, <sighs> you know, Castro and Cuba would just be more data points in the endless cycle of existential threats the U.S. would conjure up in the name of anti-communism. It would be the justifications for fighting proxy wars in Korea, Latin America, Iran, and Afghanistan, the latter two of which led to the U.S. directly arming Saddam Hussein and one Osama bin Laden of the Mujahideen. The foibles of politics and a march of time can turn friends into enemies just as easily as the wind changes. Ridiculous, isn't it? Yesterday's ally becomes today's opposition. And this Cold War? Think back. When I was leading the Cobras, America and Russia were fighting together. Now, consider whether America and Russia will still be enemies in the 21st century. Somehow, I doubt it. Enemies change along with the times, the flow of the ages. And we soldiers are forced to play along. Of course, I don't mention those fellas for nothing. This game and this story was conceived in the shadow of the War on Terror and is very much a commentary on it. Shocking no one, in each game, Metal Gear Solid tries to expand and contemporize its ongoing critique of American imperialism. 
Hussein and bin Laden, Iraq and Afghanistan, were once considered our allies back in the 80s, when they acted as proxies against Iran and the Soviets, respectively. But when that was no longer convenient, or in other words, no longer serving American ends, they became the enemies. This is a gross simplification, of course. Osama was actively trying to sabotage U.S. interests in the Middle East and North Africa prior to 9-11, and Hussein and the conflict with Iran was more largely about oil, hearkening back to our MGS2 discussion on the petrodollar. But if you think back to the boss's quote, The sacrifices of war cause a shift in the times. This shift leads to renewed conflict and in turn triggers the next war. Like a nuclear chain reaction, each conflict sparks countless others, forming an endless spiral that will continue on for eternity. You see that very much on display in the events of the 30 years preceding the release of MGS-3. The actions the U.S. took in the late Cold War, arming bin Laden and Hussein, led to a shift in the times, the end of the USSR and the end of history period, which led to the next war, this war on terror. And this has been going on previous to all that, the snake forever eating itself. Regional conflicts leading to World War I, leading to the rise of Nazism and the events of World War II, leading into the Cold War, and on and on it goes. The war on terror is not just broadly critiqued through monologue either. It's explicitly visualized in the events of this game. Namely, the torture of Naked Snake is an explicit reference to Abu Ghraib, down to the black bag on Snake's head and the way he's hung. The game's torture scene shifts away from the cinematic homage of the torture table from Goldfinger and into something more real, and thusly more brutal. We mentioned in the prior two titles Kojima engaged with the concept of torture before it was in the zeitgeist. Here, he sharpens the scene when it very much is in the thick of it. We've talked at length about the philosophers and the philosophers' legacy and what they represent. But before we move off the imperialism topic, I do want to dish just a bit more on the Wiseman's Committee, which were the core decision makers of the philosophers and presumably the 12 names that Solid Snake and Otacon recovered at the end of Sons of Liberty. They may be deceased, but as the boss says... But the last of the original members died in the 1930s. After that, the organization began to run out of control, and the Wiseman's Committee degenerated into a mere shell of its former self. The philosophers of today have no sense of good or evil. Their influence extends to countries and organizations involved in every aspect of every war. They have become war itself. The Wiseman's Committee is a direct reference to a book by Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas called The Wiseman, Six Friends and the World They Made. This nonfiction work recounts the actions of six men who crafted post-war America and the containment policy for socialist and communist uprisings. From FDR to LBJ, these men architected NATO, the World Bank, the Truman Doctrine, and the Marshall Plan, all organizations and directives used to forward American interests and ideology, often under the guise of a third-party or collaborative effort. For posterity, the six men documented in this book are Dean Acheson, Secretary of State under President Truman, Charles E. Bolin, U.S. Ambassador to the Soviet Union, Philippines, and France, W. Avril Harriman, Special Envoy for President FDR, George F. Kennan, Ambassador to the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, State Department Director of Policy Planning, Robert A. Lovett, Truman Secretary of Defense, and John J. McCloy, a War Department official and later U.S. High Commissioner for Germany. 
Absurd to think that so few people could shape so much. Maybe more absurd now given how our culture infantilizes politicians as being helpless small beings that won't let them confront a Joe Manchin when he declares voting rights are for the birds. <laughs> a little less helpless when Ilan Omar criticizes Israel, though. I do think we've lost the thread of power in the imperial core here, but I digress before I go on a longer rant. On that topic, yeah, I think um, t- to what degree it's intentional that uh, politicians are seen as, you know, helpless little small beans. Um, I, I don't know that it is necessarily intentional on anybody's part, although it's, you know, sure effective if it is. But I think we do need to understand that politicians are not just passive uh conveyors of imperialism. I mean, to some extent they are because any one is not, uh, doesn't hold all the cards, but they are actively shaping the world around them, especially when they hold any sort of seat in power, seat of power in the most powerful country uh, in the history of the world. And so it's important to recognize that they're not just people in a newspaper on your TV screen or computer screen or whatever, like they're, They really are shaping the world, and their decisions are going to have an impact on people around you. Um, And and in 50 years, you know, somebody's going to write another book about the way Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and George H.W. Bush and W. Bush and Obama did that. A soldier's skills aren't meant to be used to hurt friends. So then what is an enemy? Is there such a thing as an absolute timeless enemy? There is no such thing, and never has been. And the reason is that our enemies are human beings like us. We've talked much of pacifist play in Metal Gear. Hell, it's one of the franchise's defining traits. The first game confronted you with your violence, while the second introduced non-lethal mechanics, allowing you to beat the game without killing anyone, at least for gameplay purposes. MGS3, though, I feel is where the where this theme really starts to sing. The most obvious point in its regard is the increasing number of ways that you can engage non-lethally with enemies. You don't actually have that many more non-lethal weapons in this game, a trank pistol, a sniper rifle, stun grenades are holdovers from previous games, while the SIG spray and handkerchief are new, though not really weapons in the traditional sense. But the introduction of flora and fauna, as well as the enhancements in environments and enemy AI, allow for plenty more ways to fuck with guards. Throwing food or animals at soldiers can be just as effective, and more importantly, helps you conserve important resources like ammo and suppressors. The CQC system is also specifically implemented to allow you to engage with enemies in non-lethal ways, as is the holdup system. Instead of just NPCs to avoid or kill, enemies can now become important sources of information and resources. And the best rewards, as we've highlighted throughout our coverage, can only be acquired via non-lethal play. All the boss camos are obtained via non-lethal methods, as is the Mosin Nagant sniper rifle. The game incentivizes you to play non-lethally like this, and the rewards enhance your abilities to continue playing pacifistically. Perhaps the heart of non-lethal play may be in the camo system more than your weapons. More gear than arsenal, if you will. Effective camouflaging combined with patience will allow the player to navigate these maps without even engaging enemies, letting them lie right at sentry's feet or just overhead without threat of detection. 
We've mentioned this before, but Snake goes through this entire game's cutscenes without killing a single soldier, save the one at the end. The soldier, if you will. The game accentuates Snake's execution of the boss by potentially allowing it be the only soldier you have to directly kill in this game. So, you did mention that Snake doesn't kill anybody in the cutscenes, but one thing I noticed that I've, you know, been dying to talk about is that every cutscene where Snake is holding his CQC weapons, so his, or excuse me, his knife and a pistol, the pistol is always the M1911 that Eva gave him, or at least, you know, after, after he gets it. Yeah. Um, So he's holding the lethal 1911 and not the non-lethal Mark 22 hush puppy. Um, And I even found that to be the case in situations where I triggered the cutscene while holding the Mark 22. Um, and I take this to mean that Snake has not yet become disillusioned uh, by war or anything and just is carrying on as usual with no qualms about killing people. And ultimately, when Naked Snake becomes the big boss of later installments, he really doesn't have a problem with killing people anyway. So to me, it makes sense that he would be sort of a cold killer from the start. Um, and perhaps the non-lethal elements of the game are there to uh, sort of on the player side um, – you know, on the other side of the fourth wall, make it seem consistent and still move along Kojima's, you know, pacifist ideals, um, while also still telling the story of this character uh, on his fall from grace. Yeah, no, I actually honestly uh, enjoy you pointing that out. And I almost wonder if that could be a deliberate feint, uh, because I don't think you're really keeping track of Snake's kill count, you know, really in cutscenes as you progress through the game. Um, so being armed with a lethal weapon, you might not be paying attention to the fact that he actually hasn't killed anyone. But um, I think that is a worthy thing to point out, um, that he's, you know, at, at least using the threat of death or the threat of killing, if not actually killing itself. No, I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, maybe he's just excited about it. I mean, if some if some cute woman handed me a... a a, a modified 1911 with the uh, feeding ramp polished to a mirror shine. I'd be pretty excited about that thing too. I wouldn't put it away either. He does love that gun. <laughs> if there's any CIA agents listening to this, wondering how to compromise me, uh, well, you know what to get me now. I'm sure the CIA is monitoring all our communications uh, in and out of outer heaven. But one thing uh, I have noticed about the MGS three cutscenes, at least is the cutscenes will update depending on whether you have the suppressor on your uh, M1911 or not, but it will always show you holding that gun regardless. Right. Exa- exactly. Like it tracks your camouflage, like do you have the suppressor on or not, but every time it's the 1911. And this again will also uh, rear its head in Metal Gear Solid 4, where again, I don't think Snake actually kills someone in a cutscene at least. Um I, I don't want to say that without actually going back and replaying that because there's a lot of times he's, you know, firing blindly at soldiers. Uh, but, uh, you know, more often than not, he's shown in his cutscenes either with the M4 or the lethal operator pistol. He's never shown with the Trank pistol in the cutscenes, um, even though I don't think he's like going on a killing spree in any of them. Right. Another point we've mentioned before, but I want to put a bow on it as we wrap up this game is that non-lethal play feeds into the story of Big Boss as a savior of soldiers, a recruiter, an angel who comes and takes them away to outer heaven. The soldier is a pitiable figure in MGS games, more old hat for this podcast, but that point of view is found in both Snake and the boss in this game, and Big Boss in all future games. The leader we will see in them takes seed here. 
Which rolls right into the next meme of Podcast Sans Frontieres wrap-up episodes, challenging the video game power fantasy. Like all the other topics, this is an ongoing theme in MGS games that continues to evolve and refine itself pursuant to the times. The pacifist gameplay, of course, is a pillar of this, not only providing the option to not kill everyone, but to incentivize it to the point that it at least has become my preferred way to play this and all Metal Metal Gear Solid games, and honestly, any game where pacifism is an option. And as mentioned, Snake only technically kills the boss in the game's cinematics, so a player looking for a John Rambo moment out of their protagonist will be sorely disappointed. We already did highlight that we also get to watch Snake piss himself during the torture scene, maybe the least empowering act where our hero is laid bare. The Sorrow Battle deserves specific mention here, even though we covered it in detail a few episodes back. Few games before or after have confronted the player with their own history of violence, the specificity of violence in fact. It's Liquid Snake staring back through the screen at you and saying, you enjoy all the killing. The meme transformed from cutscene to gameplay. And also like that first Metal Gear Solid title, Snake here is ultimately a puppet at best. His individual victories are prescribed to him. The overall success, really that of his mentors. The one he killed, by the way. Yet again, he is a pawn on a prescribed route that he executes to a T. He briefly gets the girl, who promptly betrays him, and Snake only gets to live on by her mercy. Man, I pine for the days of riding off into the sunset with Otacon. Snake is a pawn in the story, and ultimately we the players are pawns of the creators. Despite the variety of ways this game can be played, in the end we must all do our duty and run our little course through the game. In a way, the inability to change the narrative track is satirized in the Game Over Time Paradox screens. Not only do you not have control of your fate, but your future also has a history that cannot be changed. Powerless indeed. Actually, let me take that a bit further. Remember, Metal Gear Solid 3 was supposed to be the last of the trilogy, a finite endpoint. As ludicrous as it seems, we were left to come up with our own story of Big Boss and his descent or ascent, to, well, Big boss from now until the events of Metal Gear 1 and 2. One of the themes that is strongest in this game, uh, from my read of it, is the theme of motherhood, and specifically that of a sort of mother-coded character, obviously the boss, making a sacrifice for a quote-unquote son uh, that he will never be able to repay, or frankly even understand, until it's too late. That's a story element in this game, but also in the gameplay, we have a recurring element in the franchise. The player character having to carry, sometimes literally, a female character through danger, be it the rookie Meryl in Metal Gear Solid 1 or Emma in Sons of Liberty. There's often a time where the mother-son role is reversed. In Snake Eater, there's a part where Eva is injured and Snake has to guard her from the Soviet troops to safety. I don't think this is Kojima trying to call women weak by any stretch, because all the female characters who do this are very consequential to the plot, and in Eva's case, very self-sufficient. To me, this is furthering the subversion of the typical shooter fantasy, because like the shooter fantasy, you are the toughest son of a bitch on Earth. You are a one-man army who's taken down giant military machines, but for a moment you have to take care of somebody else, or rather protect instead of harm someone. And the thing is, it's fucking infuriating. And maybe that says something about me. Maybe it's what Kojima wanted, but I found that part of the game where you have to guard Eva uh, just the fucking worst. I, I couldn't fucking handle it. I hated it. Uh, anyway, 
that's that's my read on that, and I think that's a, a theme in the games that deserves to be uh, interrogated a little bit. Um, and the other, another thing that occurred to me last night, I was watching uh, Psycho, a film that I'm sure Kojima has seen a million times. So uh, being that this is a, you know, spoiler warning uh, zone, I'm just going to assume that everybody here is uh, at least um, familiar with the plot of Psycho if they haven't actually seen it. But anyway, at the end, there's a police psychologist explaining what the deal with Norman Bates is. And it boils down to Norman dealing with the act of matricide, killing his mother, and becoming a different person. Um, In Norman's case, he just became his mother, dressed up in her clothes, uh, and talked in her voice and made up conversations between the two of them. But in Snake's case, he becomes a different person who's Big Boss. And perhaps that name is meant to suggest that Big Boss and Boss are more alike than different. But in any case, I would suggest that contrary to my news hypothesis, it is after Snake's act of matricide that he is reborn as Big Boss, uh, and not necessarily during the torture sequence. Yeah, um, maybe to kind of have a little dialectic between our two theories, because Big Boss, that whole kind of rebirth scene and the, uh, you know, the literal rebirth following his quote unquote death and, uh, you know, the battle with the sorrow, I would say maybe the entire third act is uh, being the rebirth of Big Boss, uh, which includes like the good parts, you know, destroying these giant mechas and Volgan and all that, but then also the tragedy and the heartbreak at the core of it. Um, which, you know, go hand in hand, not one, not the other, you know, uniquely defines it, but the two of them in um, concert define, you know, this big boss character. So I can definitely get on board with that hypothesis. Yeah. Well, frankly, I mean, I think they're all they're all worthy uh, hypotheses. I just like to throw out some different ideas for the sake of conversation. But I happened to watch I happened to watch Psycho around the time that I was doing research for this. And I thought, now, hey, wait a second. Kojima's a movie guy. He's seen this a million times. I wonder how much this had something to do with it. And before we move on to the next topic, I want to uh, recognize the King Kojima for uh, purchasing Billie Eilish's new album on the first day and posting about it. (laughs) And of course, playing it on a Sony cassette Walkman. I love him. In a way, Metal Gear Solid 3 is Kojima's most spiritual game. Can I elaborate on that? No. Biblical themes are no stranger to Kojima. We spent time discussing the Tower of Babel and its meaning in MGS2, which will also come back in our Phantom Pain discussions. As I very much belabored during this entire series, this game is very explicitly Genesis. Eva tells you it's like capital G Genesis, with a twist, it's the lowercase g Genesis of the canon of Metal Gear. Snake also has his own Christ-like touches, namely him being strung up, dying, and then being reborn as Big Boss, at whichever point you want to say he was. While Snake doesn't ascend to the heavens or return to his home planet, I'm a little fuzzy on the Bible, He does become a savior figure in his own right, saving soldiers from the battlefield and bringing them under his care. Outer Heaven isn't just a name, folks. And well, American policymakers and warmongers hold Big Boss up as a savior too, not in good faith, of course, but to take advantage of his image to push their own regressive imperialist ends. You know, something American policymakers and warmongers do with the actual Jesus Christ too. There's so much more than Christianity in play here, though. 
the pagan gods of old come through as well. Perhaps a nod to the natural setting which creates firm pasture for that to grow. Vulgan and the Cobra unit could be ripped straight from Greek myth. The former Zeus-like, while someone like the Sorrow invokes both Hades and Charon, the ferrymen of River Styx. And I already impressed upon you the analogy to Odin, making Big Boss the all-father to this world of snakes and metal gears. And I did want to end on the topic of sexuality, which I veer carefully into right now. We're dudes, boy dudes even, and I think it would be gauche of us to present an overarching verdict on how respectful or exploitative this game is in relation to its women characters. But I do want to linger on the fact that this game is horny, and earnestly so. A lot of the fun in doing this podcast has been reveling in the ways that Metal Gear is a salve for all that ails modern pop culture, as brought to you by, like, four corporations. Metal Gear challenges traditional male power fantasies, it questions the nature of sequels and content ad infinitum, and it offers something other than fan service when all fans seem to want now is one toy to team up with another. Perhaps the most apparent of these juxtapositions is on the bonk scale. Metal Gear has always been horny and unrepentantly so. But Metal Gear Solid 3 takes it to the next level, down to everything short of sex on screen as we watch Snake and Eva get drunk and get down at the game's end. We have bisexual communists, we have R1 triggers to view a character's ass. It's a bit messy, and again, I don't think I can say confidently that it's not male gazy, but there is raw desire there that I think is earnest and welcome. And I think it's important that it's it's a lot... That earnestness kind of separates it from a lot, especially in the early 2000s. Like, if games ever trafficked in sex, it was like the most puerile, like, leisure suit Larry shit. Like, that's all you really had. So that's, that's definitely a nice, certainly, uh, a very different. And I would, I would also agree, welcome change from the extremely chaste, like, American, American action movie style, basically no sex at all that you see in pretty much every other game or like, flash game porn sex game like that those those are the only other two those are the two extremes at that point in time and still kind of are to an extent so that's a nice and welcome change i would agree i think the other one that's kind of contemporary to the metal gear solid two and three is uh grand theft auto um and you know getting a sex worker into the back of your car um watching your money go down and then having the ability to you know trigger warning kill her after um all that it's Definitely, you know, it's the most cynical possible interpretation. Exactly. Um, And while this stuff might be, you know, whatever criticism you have of it, it doesn't feel cynical in that way. It generally feels heartfelt um, or at least, you know, sincere in its uh, depiction of desire. I do love that uh, this game's sort of sexual undertones uh, carry on the uh, common theme in James Bond films. as You've already established a big influence on Metal Gear Solid. Um, frequently in Bond films, uh, especially the Connery era, uh, there's a woman who is uh, somehow in league with the villain who is sent to seduce James Bond uh, in an effort to either distract or or just murder him or whatever. Um, she's she's sent to go get Bond off his game, and she immediately has sex with him and just is immediately like, oh no, nope, time time to switch time. I'm flipping sides rearranging he rearranged my guts and now he's rearranged my moral character uh i'm on the other side now uh and and in metal gear solid 3 uh you know eva's like ah i'm gonna let him live 
No, and that's a nice segue to talk about modern blockbuster cinema, though. I think actually the James Bond franchise is somewhat exempt from what I'm about to say, because um, it's always been horny, whether how well it's handled that horniness, it's always been horny. Otherwise, so much of modern blockbuster cinema is sexless sexuality, representation aesthetically without material intimacy. Yes, these two queer characters shared a longing glance, or the god of mischief said he goes a couple ways, but that is divorcing identity from sexuality. And no, I'm not necessarily saying Loki and Winter Soldier need to fuck each other on screen, but I just don't want representation of identity to allied representation of experience. These characters, be it Solid Snake or Big Boss or Captain America, are fictional, larger-than-life Age of Heroes type shit. They live lives we could never have in worlds we can barely imagine. The way we connect to them is in their acts of humanity, the choices they make, the fellowships they build, the love they feel. Stripping away sexual intimacy from popular art just narrows the path in which we can traverse our own humanity. Okay, now I'm probably ranting and way off topic, but I just want to say I appreciate it. Even if it is messy... Art should be messy, it should be difficult, it should literally arouse many conflicting emotions within us. And what makes Metal Gear Solid, and Metal Gear Solid 3 specifically, so great is it constantly engages us in our desires, our choices, our violence, and in our joy, whether in victory or in defeat. That's mission complete for this episode and for Metal Gear Solid 3. Before we sign off, we want to thank Will so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, This has been really nice. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show. I've learned a lot from listening to it. Uh, And I hope you, the the listeners now, have gained a greater appreciation for this game from having me be part of this discussion. Uh, I'm almost like embarrassed to admit this, um, but I sort of didn't grasp until um, having listened to this show um, just the thing that uh, Kojima's maybe doing some criticism of nuclear weapons that a Japanese guy might have some thoughts about that that I don't like I it sounds stupid but I just didn't put two and two together um, until some point while listening to this show so um, I, I really have to thank you guys for for bringing that realization on to me um, any case if you'd like to hear me talk about far less insightful topics uh, please check out the Raw Intelligence podcast, which will be returning to uh, Spotify. That's the only place I did the paperwork for it to be on, <laughs> um, hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Will. And we'll definitely throw uh, a link or a tweet up uh, linking to uh, Raw Intelligence and your Twitters as well. Uh, so thank you very much again for joining us. Oh, of course. Thank you again for having me. Thanks. A quick programming note for our listeners. We are going to take much of August off. We have a special episode about sequels, prequels, and remakes that we'll have out during sometime in August. 
but we will look to start our Metal Gear Solid 4 coverage sometime in September. Along with that, we hope to have some more interesting content to uh, go alongside our ongoing games coverage, hopefully some interviews and maybe some other special deep dives uh, like we did previously with uh, James Bond. So uh, stay on the lookout. I think we have a lot of exciting stuff coming out for you guys that I think you'll enjoy. And, you know, you get to hear more of us, which is always great. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieris at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. We're men with names. For the last time. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And again, for the last time, you have a way to fall. Son, you've got a to fall They'll tell you where to go But they won't know So You'd better take it all They'll tell you what they But setting is really about place and time, or in Metal Gear's Lingua Franca. Sorry, let me start that paragraph over. Uh, I won't do a hackneyed Webster's Dictionary to find setting as, but setting is really about place and time, or in Metal Gear's Lingua, Lingua Franca. See, God, why do I suck at saying that? Um, last time, sorry. Whatever comes out is the way it comes out. And the actual specific location of the game's events are somewhat opaque. Selino Yarsk <laughs> is not... Uh, did somewhat. you have something? No, it's somewhat, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to start that from the top. I'm not super well-versed in Godzilla lore, but isn't uh, at least one background story that uh, the, the creature, the titular creature is like a result of nuclearly... Nuclear irradiated waters, something like that. Uh, I've only really seen the what's it called the original, and it was that. God, I I should know this better because it's one of my favorite movies, but um, I do not know. Well, <laughs> I apologize. We'll save that for another installment, I guess. Yeah, Stephen, sound editor, <laughs> you can go ahead and move that. Uh, what's it called? That part of the thing to the outtakes at the end, because. Clearly showing my ass on how little I know about Godzilla. A dud. Or, um.